Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We're going to be picking up in Proverbs chapter 16. Oh, the verse. Somebody said 16.2. Is that the verse? No. No, okay. Okay. Good. You guys are confuddling me already. 16.6 is where we'll pick up. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we have spent quite a lot of time on the verses leading up to verse 6, so without much context, I'm just going to jump into it. One of the sub-themes in this section that's been kind of continually emerging has been the uh, arrogance versus humility, so we'll see that continue to play itself out as a sub-theme. Here at... Verse 6, we've got this wonderful proverb that centers on the sacrificial language of Leviticus and some of the most common gospel words in the Old Testament. So, by steadfast love, that's the kassad, uh, kassad which by, by which God binds himself to us. In a secondary sense, it's the way in which we bind ourselves to God. I think it would be helpful to have in view here what John says. We love him because he first loved us. And so as long as we have the theologic in order, then we're poised to see both sides of this particular proverb. So I think it's worth, as we entertain this, whose steadfast love, who's the subject here, whose faithfulness results in sins atoned for? Well, I think very clearly, or at least stated that way, the answer would be God, who loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son and gave his son to be a propitiation, a setting forth over and against iniquity for sins. This language of atone for is similar to Yom Kippur, where one day out of the year, a high priest, and this all according to Leviticus, would enter into not just the holy place inside the temple, but even beyond that, in through the curtain into the holiest of holies. And there you would find the Ark of the Covenant with the golden cherubim with their wings stretched out over. And this Ark very often thought to be a throne and seen as a throne. You can think of Isaiah's, uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, you can think of Isaiah's vision, for example, where he's in the temple and he sees the throne of God and the cherubim on the sides or seraphim, as the case may be, there in Isaiah, are suddenly shown as alive. And the things on earth, a copy and representation of those heavenly realities. 
So then upon the seat of that throne would be poured the blood of the lamb, the blood of atonement, once a year on Yom Kippur. And St. Paul in Romans, when he's setting forth the glory of Christ and the righteousness apart from the law, will talk about that blood of Christ poured out and even in a sense kind of blur the language and imagery to where Christ himself is referred to as the hilasterion, as the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. So his own blood, his own sacrifice, and of course beautifully you can remember that among the items stored in the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets. Well, actually, the second copy. You remember what happened to the first. The second copy were stored in there. So, in a very beautiful sense, the blood of Jesus covering the law and its accusations against us. So, you'll hear Paul echo that language today in the epistle reading in the divine service where it is the, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now, notice that he doesn't say the end of the law. <laughs> that's, a, that's a famous uh, cut, cutting off of the verse by antinomians and law despisers and people who kind of want to interpose their own sense of righteousness. He is not the end of the law, period. He is the end of the law for righteousness unto all who believe. That is to say, the law is no longer the righteousness by which we stand before God or the lack of righteousness, as the law clearly shows. Rather, we stand before God clothed in Christ. We stand before God having Christ's blood poured out as the unblemished lamb, his blood poured out on the mercy seat, not in the temple that's going to be destroyed in 70 AD, but on the mercy seat that truly exists in heaven, of which the Ark of the Covenant on earth merely represents. So Christ pours out his blood on the true heavenly mercy seat. And if you want to see a longer discourse on this, I highly commend the book of Hebrews. (laughs) The whole thing? Yep, the whole thing. Just do it. It won't take you that long. Less than an hour, probably. Okay, so that will help us flesh out some of this language of atonement, or yakapar. So, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity, sin, is atoned for. And again, I think by way of primary meditation, we ought to be thinking of God as the subject. It's his steadfast love, his faithfulness. I think of another passage from St. Paul. Um, Even if we are faithless, he is faithful. So all depends upon him, not upon us. Even if we are faithless, he is faithful. He loves us with kesed, this steadfast love, and thus, on account of these things, Christ is crucified for the sins of the world. Our sins are atoned for. All right, second half of the proverb, and by the fear of the Lord. Now, we know that this is a a technical usage because this is the whole theme of Proverbs and a recurring echo of the thesis that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So to just put a slightly different and maybe more familiar language on top of that, 
Faith is the beginning of wisdom. To fear the Lord is synonymous with faith. And so we believe, and thus in believing, he gives us wisdom to understand. Kind of that thing I've probably already quoted from Augustine like seven times in this class, and without any embarrassment at all, I'll quote it another seven times. Because it's that important, and it's foundational to our biblical epistemology. That is how we know, how we know what is true or right. And Augustine says, crede ut intelligas, believe in order to understand. Now, as fallen human beings, we always flip that on its head. Well, I have to understand. Then I have to weigh and assess if I think it's right or true or reasonable. And then if it passes all my, my muster and all of my criteria, then I will believe it. But that's precisely to sit on the throne and put God down in the dock and judge his word to see if it's acceptable to you. That's what it is when we try to understand and then believe. So rather instead, if the Lord says it, I believe it, whether or not I understand it. And Augustine's point is that's exactly the first step. To believe first, and then in believing, God is so well pleased with our faith in his word, childlike as it may be, he gives us the ability to understand that word more and more deeply. So faith, then wisdom. Or here, the fear of the, by the fear of the Lord um, is the beginning of wisdom. That's the thesis of Proverbs. And so you can see the play then on this concept. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. By faith, one turns away from evil. How so? Well, if we connect the dots with Christ in the center, as we should do, because Christ himself says that, the Old Testament scriptures speak of him, then if we connect those dots, it's by faith in Christ that he has forgiven our sins. It's that very reality that empowers us to reject sin. Because we go, this is the very thing for which Christ died. And he died to take this away. He didn't die that we could go on sinning and his grace would simply abound. That wasn't the purpose. That puts it exactly backwards. His purpose was to come and cleanse us from sin and then begin to drive that sin out. Out of us individually, out of us corporately, ultimately out of the world. That's what his parousia, his second coming, is all about. When he comes, he's going to purge the world and drive out all sins and sinners and demons and all who are opposed to to what is good and right, all who are opposed to him. Okay, so then, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Now, there's another sense in which we can take this, and that is, if we are the subject of the steadfast love and faithfulness, in what sense do we atone for sin? Well, not in the sense that Christ atones for sin. There is one mediator between God and man, and there is one effective atonement. But to apply that atonement, to apply that forgiveness of others, is given to us. To bear one another's burdens. 
as the scriptures say. And so in that sense, to love the Lord because he first loved us and to be faithful to him because he is always faithful to us is to love and be faithful with that love and faithfulness that he has shown to us. So this would be touching on the heart of that paradox in the New Testament both Jesus and John teach. An old commandment I give you that you love one another. A new commandment that I give you that you love one another. Well, what on earth? It's love in the sense that it's the same reality, but now it's love that can actually be fulfilled because of the renewal that God has worked within you. It's love that actually begins, and it's love that takes on a cruciform shape, a cross shape, a self-sacrificing love for one another, a putting forward of that mercy that God has shown to us unto one another. The reversal of that uh, unrighteous and wicked servant who, remember him, he had all his debt forgiven. Then he goes out and finds a fellow who owes him a substantial amount, but not nearly as much as he had just been forgiven. And he begins to choke him and say, pay what you owe. So a reversal of that, where we are receiving the forgiveness of Christ in such a way that then we also forgive those who sin against us. Make sense? That's the putting forward of the gospel. Okay, so I think we can meditate positively on that side of this proverb as well. Now, we're not mere recipients of it. Our receipt is obviously the most important. But then in Christ, we also become doers, not merely hearers, but doers of this new love, this new faithfulness unto sinners. Let me pause there, because I've said a lot. Let me just make sure that everyone's uh, tracking, or if you have any questions, or maybe you saw something I didn't see. Okay, well, if nothing else, I got a sip of coffee in. Verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, this is great. How profoundly true, again, in Christ. Is Christ a man? Yes, absolutely, he's true man. Did his ways please his father? Yes, absolutely so. In fact, we hear that several times at key points in Jesus' ministry. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At his baptism at the Mount of Transfiguration. And if a man's ways please the Lord, then he, that is the Lord, makes even that man's enemies to be at peace with him. And this is fun to reflect on because of what St. Paul again writes in Romans, that while we were still his enemies, he gave his son to die for us. While we were still his enemies, Christ loved us and laid down his life for us. So... It's a beautiful thing to reflect on in terms of the cross that Jesus pleased the Lord and thus the Lord 
made even our Lord's enemies to be at peace with him, that would be us converted at peace with the Lord because he is at peace with us through the blood of his son. Now, obviously, this has a wider application, doesn't it? God is pleased to have us as his children in Christ. That's the first and all-important category. And that's an unconditional category. If your parents or grandparents, you know this, you love your children or your grandchildren, and they remain your children or your grandchildren, whether they perform well or not so well. So you love them without condition. But that doesn't mean you're pleased with them in the secondary sense. I can love my son or love my daughter without condition. That is, I'm always pleased to have them as my children, even when they disappoint me. But they do disappoint me. And that's the second category. They can please you or disappoint you. And that's the second category here that this proverb is alluding to. We are pleasing to the Lord in Christ Jesus, full stop. He's pleased to have us as his children. But that doesn't mean that in our daily lives, everything we do is pleasing to him. That can be disappointing or pleasing. And this is such an important thing to grasp because it'll fill your life, it'll fill your daily life with meaning. You get up and you go, instead of going like, okay, what's the drudgery or who do I have to serve or what are the old patterns or who am I going to serve that's not worthy of my service or, you know, all the grumpy thoughts you have at least before you have your coffee. This will open up a vista to how about if I seek to please the Lord? Now, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm going to fall short of the glory of God this day too. I daily sin much and Surely deserve nothing but punishment, but I pray that his mercy would be upon me nonetheless, that he'd hear my prayer nonetheless, and that my doings in life would be pleasing to him, pleasing in the secondary sense. So that opens up a wonderful vista, because instead of saying, you know, I've done that 15 times for you, and you haven't done it once. Well, wait, why did you do that for a human? Why didn't you do that to please the Lord? And framing it that way, doesn't it take on a fresh take? Now, do our good works justify us before the Lord? No, of course not. We've got to keep these categories very straight in our minds. You know, Luther reminds us that God doesn't need our good works. And that's exactly right. I mean, first of all, it's absurd. God has no need at all. But God doesn't need our good works in the sense that we have to somehow atone for our sins through our good works. That's absurd. In fact, it's even insulting. Imagine being God and giving your son into death for perfect righteousness, and other people are like, no, I think I I need a different righteousness than that. That's insulting. So, no, God doesn't need our works. That's one side of the coin. But the other side of the coin is that he does, in fact, delight in our works. As a father delights in his children. And it doesn't matter if our works are really not all that great. I've used this analogy before. You know, when I was uh, mowing the lawn and my son was, I don't know what, like four or five years old, he's behind me with the bubble lawnmower. Did he cut a single blade of grass? No. But he was out there helping. Okay? So is it an effective good work? Well, all that language kind of is absurd, isn't it? Because it was a delight to his father's heart. 
And so again, I think that also can clarify things for us that God's not looking at us in some strict performance-based manner. Is, is my son, because he loves me, trying to copy me? That was the case with mowing the lawn. How much more does our Heavenly Father delight in us when we try to be as he is? So, it's this glorious vista that's opened up um, when we consider that our life, far from being meaningless, far from being nihilistic, far from being performance-based or performance-driven, is simply a life lived in the presence of God already with the open invitation that we can delight Him and please Him with what we say and do. Okay, so secondary reflection. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And we have concrete examples of this in the scripture. It's one of these proverbs, it's not always true. It's not some ironclad promise. Sometimes bad people just hate you no matter what. I mean, again, remember, they crucified Christ. But there are examples even still where God makes the enemies of, say, King David or King Saul subdued and at peace with them on account of their great fear of the Lord. So they please the Lord and thus he makes even the enemies to be at peace with him. So you see that in, the, in David's kingdom when it thrives, especially more in the first half before the Bathsheba incident and the punishment of God. And then, of course, in Solomon, David's son, um, at least until all of the idolatry uh, is brought in. Okay, proverb verse 8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. And we've seen this theme emerge several times in Proverbs, so I won't belabor it. Better to be poor and have God than be rich and have him not. Better to be poor and be righteous in Christ, trying to live a God-pleasing life, than to be absolutely rich and have no righteousness within you and no relationship to God. So it's a good warning for us, you know, as I preached last week against all these, well, not all these, but the few great sort of mega corporations that have just astounding global monopolies and can control and potter nations, piece of cake. Um, would you trade places with one of those guys? I would not. I would do everything in my power to be where I am as opposed to be where they are. It doesn't go well for those who have all the wealth in the world and have injustice. And this is a theme and a pattern throughout Scripture. Do you want to know why? Because it's a theme and a pattern throughout all of creation. Money corrupts. And with that, thus, money and wealth become synonymous with the wicked and with the persecutors of God's people in just about every age. Okay, so even if that's also as a generality, so be it. Obviously, there can be rich Christians. Joseph of Arimathea was one of them. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Any thoughts? Everyone's subdued this morning. All right.
Verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Okay, remission in immediate context of verse 1 of this chapter. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. A man can plan away, but ultimately God's in control. I think that's the sentiment of both of these Proverbs. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Which is why it's so important for us to pray and not assume success. And to pray that God would prosper the work of our hands, prosper the work of our lips, etc. Proverbs uh, 16.10 An oracle is on the lips of a king. Now, here's efficiently, the Lutheran Study Bible will point out this language of oracle. So if you look down at the note on 16.10, Hebrew term could be translated as divination and usually has negative connotations. Some examples cited may refer to making decisions by casting lots. Okay, And by casting lots, this might be lost on us because it's not the way we would necessarily cast lots today. We would think of it as like luck or fate or one of those pagan ideas. Casting lots, you can think of, uh, for example, when Judas' position amongst the twelve had to be fulfilled, they had two choices and they cast lots and Matthias was the one. But how did they cast lots? They prayed that the Holy Spirit, through the casting of lots, would work his will and work his way. So that's in view here too, with the study note, may refer to making decisions by casting lots. I actually, I'm all for this. I need to make myself a t-shirt that says, bring casting lots back again. <laughs> because I think this is great. You know, can't decide something, pray and cast a lot and go with it. You know, it's a lot better than like Googling it some other umpteenth time. Pastor, if I may, sorry. <laughs> yes. Oh, there you are. Yeah. I just want to back up for a moment. Um, Please. Talking about money corrupting, just on not to, to be too fine a point on it, but the love of money corrupts. So yeah, more ul- than just the. Entity I mean, ultimately, itself. technically, you're right because yeah. what is money? It's stored value, and mammon, more loosely, even when you don't have like a monetized culture, you've just got stuff that you're going to trade. You know, you've got the guy with his barns full. So right. Technically speaking, it is the love of money or the love of stuff, right? not the stuff itself. Yeah, so great point on that. Although I will, I will say this, that I can think of basically only that one place in all of scriptures that put that fine point on it. Now, there sure. may well be others, but I have a, uh, a pretty firm suspicion that the vast majority of the places the scriptures speak, it's just ham-fisted. There's not such a distinction made. Right. right? I yeah. think most people don't make that distinction anyway. <laughs> right. And then just, right. A, yeah. and just a comment um, on the heart of man plans his way. That passage, it reminds me of something that my late father-in-law used to say all the time. Um, man proposes, but God disposes. <laughs> Just nice. kind of a, a fun way, <laughs> fun way to think about that verse. Nice, yeah, yeah. And you know, we can be so disappointed too as Christians because we can have some pious thought or pious plan in mind, and we can pray that this would happen, and go through all the right steps and everything else, and then God won't will see to it that it doesn't happen. And you know, you go, 
Did I not check all the boxes? Is this, is, this, is this contrary to the scriptures? No. Is it in agreement with the scriptures? Yes. Did I pray? Yes. Did I go about this in a Christian manner? Yes. Why did it fail? And the temptation, of course, is to become angry with God. So then all God does is has other things fail more and more and more. <laughs> That's his reaction. Um, because he's, I think, teaching us very valuable and important things deep in the heart, which is that he's in charge and he knows what's best, even when you're being super pious. <laughs> How quickly our piety can also become manipulation. So that might be in view. But even assuming everything's right and upright and good, God doesn't always give us what we want because even what we want is good. It's too narrow, too short-sighted, and or is a lesser blessing than what he's going to give by saying no up front. So God often does his best work in the guise of destroying our plans or saying no to our plans, saying no to our prayers, usually because we're praying for something too small. And what he has in store for us, we'd never ask for. Because there's suffering involved and difficulty involved and growth involved and maturity involved. And who has time for that? But the true test is when you look back on your life under your father here on earth and you will say thank you and you will thank him most of all for the prayers he answered no that's my suspicion you will thank him most of all for the struggles and afflictions because that is the means through which he gave his greatest gifts to you so I think there's an analogy there you know at least here in American culture where so often you're, you're young and you kind of trample over your parents and don't realize what you have and you get out on your own and you think, oh, that was miserable, those tyrants, you know. And um, then, you know, you hit your 20s and maybe just out of maturity or you get married and have kids your own. You start to reflect back and you start to go, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> that was kind of wise. I really appreciate that. It was hard at the time. I hated it at the time. But could you imagine if it went the way I wanted it to go? And so only in hindsight do we gain appreciation. And if that's true temporally, how much more true eternally? If that's true with our earthly parents who are flawed and filled with faults, how much more true will that be with our Heavenly Father who's not flawed and has no fault? So... I think we can look forward to that and we can rejoice, um, yeah, truly rejoice in our prayers when they're not answered because it means, it doesn't technically mean a non-answer, it means that God has something else in mind for us. Okay, on a little further. Um, yeah, so I guess we didn't finish 10. An oracle is on the lips of the king. So I think what's actually in view here is the king of Israel being a mouthpiece of the Lord. And of course, ultimately, Christ is the king of kings and as the capital T king, capital K king. You know, this is the oracle. This is the word of the Lord in his office. 
coming from God to the king. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. You know, and that's an, that's an important thing. So just to, if it's been a little while since you've read in your large catechism, you should, especially in this day and age, where so much of what we're fighting against is this radical egalitarianism where there's no authority and no structure and hierarchy's bad and, you know, we're all just the same, man. Uh, this proverb is totally against that, as well as, I don't know, something like all of the Bible. And the large catechism under the Eighth Commandment, especially the second half of that, is absolutely wonderful and is just fantastic spiritual medicine for those of us who are ailing from our times. The whole first half, as it were, is the treatment of not bearing false witness against our neighbor and and not, um, even if we find out some kind of sin that our neighbor has committed, we either deal with it through the appropriate channels or we close our mouths. And you can think that there's times where the only right thing to do is to disclose it to the appropriate channels or offices. Um, But you can think of other times where the only right thing to do is to cover it up. You know, just let it be atoned for, let it be forgiven and forgotten. Okay, that's the first half. But the second half is to those who do hold office. Particularly in view are those in the left-hand kingdom, that's the civil government, and those in the right-hand kingdom, those are your pastors and the leaders of the church. And when certain matters are brought to their attention, they sin if they don't publicize it and don't make judgment. And once that judgment has been made faithfully, then it is right and it is according to the duty of their office and it's why God has put them there in the first place. And I think that dovetails so nicely with the sentiment of the latter part of this proverb, his mouth does not sin in judgment. We, in our, again, radical egalitarian culture, anytime anyone renders a judgment, we call them judgmental. And judgmental is not nice. And nice is the first and only commandment. So we have to remind ourselves that judgment by one who has the office to judge a certain matter is required, and there is no sin in that judgment. In fact, that's the conduct of justice. Where you have people who, will, who are in office and will not judge or will not judge rightly, then you have widespread corruption and suffering. Do we know anything about that? It'd be easier to come up with exceptions, I think. Much of what ails our country today is not a uh, is not too much justice, too much judgment, too much strictness, but it's rather the opposite. And I'll burn down a city and get patted on the back. It's the exact upside downing of the hierarchy and good order that God has put in place and that God would see executed through the offices in the left and right hand kingdoms. Okay, so once more and then moving on. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. We're going to do a lot of meditation on the king. 
we definitely want to see Christ in and through all of these foremost and then reflect on the offices that Christ bestows until his return. 11. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. So merchants would go around and they'd carry weights in the bag so that they could weigh things out and you'd be able to tell what's fair and right. Do you think it ever entered into the mind of man to maybe manipulate those weights or manipulate the scales? In fact, that's one of the great signs in Revelation is the scales are so manipulated that the poor can't even eat. And you have this, you have the rich so lording it over the poor. It's like, it's almost like there's no more middle class. Does that sound like anything familiar or anything going on? Yeah, I think so. And so you've got no middle class and you've got the poor and they're held down by the rich and the scales are tipped against them. You know, something like we're not going to raise taxes. We're just going to print a whole ton of money so that your money all loses its value and we gain that value. And lo and behold, it's a tax, but most people won't think of it as a tax because they'll call it inflation. Or we'll raise your gas prices to, what was it? I almost got a nosebleed when I drove by today. It was almost like $6 or something like that. What are the merits of buying a camel in the year of our Lord, 2023? Uh, Is it it awkward to ride one to work? I don't know. Uh, The... You know, the, we live in a time where it's so tyrannical and so oppressive that everything is raised artificially and via backroom deals and via the wealthy oppressing the rich or oppressing the poor and the rich um, lording it over the poor and all the scales being imbalanced so that your average American is supposed to ex- like believe, believe that, yep, that gas is darn it, it's really $6. Oh, everybody's just giving you a fair deal. Yep. Yep. Uh, It's just, at a certain point, you're incredulous. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. So that's that's the imbalancing of the scales that we see all over our culture, all over our culture, you know. If you want to, uh, if you're going to take out a mortgage, what's your rate? I don't know what it is. 6%, something like that, more than that. Maybe, oh, it depends on your credit, doesn't it? Mm, your credit that they lord over you. Did you ask to be part of that? No. When they leak your information, what happens? Oh, you get to pay, to, you get to pay them to have it sealed. The very people who leaked it. Oh, great system. Real just, real fair. Did you ask to have a credit score? I didn't. Can you conduct business without one? Nope. Did you invent that? Did I invent that? Oh, no, the wealthy invented that. And as a matter and mode of suppressing. Anyway, back to the main thread. Uh, so your interest rate, what is it? 6% depends on your magical credit score. Maybe it's 12%. Who knows? If it's a credit card, it's certainly higher than that. And then, because the scales are perfectly balanced and fair and everything's just and right, when you deposit your money at the bank, you're going to collect exactly that interest rate, aren't you? Oh, sure you will, but with a point oh 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 in front of it. Yeah, then it's yours. <laughs> so 
again, this is so thoroughgoing. It's just in the air we breathe, and we've come to accept all these things like the proverbial frog in the pot as being, oh, yeah, the world's, you know, here in America, it's pretty fair. Okay, well, good luck retaining that theory. What we see then on a massive scale of corruption is that which then, like this corruption and oppression of the poor, is what God calls every nation to task for and ultimately disciplines it, ultimately disciplines the elite. So a just balance and scales, that's if somebody's really doing you right and being fair, the scales that they're using that are actually just, God says, those are mine. (laughs) Those are my scales right there. That's how closely he identifies with that. And anyone who uses anything other than perfect fairness, those aren't his scales. Guess what they are? (laughs) They're an abomination, as we'll see. And of course, we're reflecting on kings here, we're reflecting on civil government, we're reflecting on the economy, because that is the domain of civil government. Luther, again, such a treasure in the large catechism. You've got to read it. If it's been a while, work through it with your spouse. But he's great. He says, princes, instead of having lions and bears and dragons and fierce things on their shield, should have emblazoned thereupon a loaf of bread to remind them what their real job is. To defend the people in such a way that the people can eat and live prosperous, good lives. So, this idea then that a just balance and scales are the Lord's, all the weights in the bag are his work. And then here, connected with Proverbs uh, verse 12 of chapter 16, it is an abomination to kings to do evil. Is it? Kings acting as kings, that is, as those who are under the king of kings, the Lord Jesus, it is. This is Romans 13 and the assumptions which underlie Christian obedience to government. That government punishes the evildoer and rewards the righteous. That reflects accurately the rule of Christ in the civil sphere. Justice. Nothing more, nothing less. Any king that falls short of that, any civil ruler that falls short of that, should fear and should be trembling because they are going to be accountable to the true king. Um, If you don't believe me, Psalm 2 will help you out real fast on that. So every king is under the kingship of Christ and is answerable to him. So yes, we should expect our kings to govern according to the natural law written on the hearts of mankind. We should expect our kings to govern by way of justice. We should expect our kings to punish evil and reward that which is good. And when our kings don't reflect that and don't reflect the rule of Christ, when they command that we sin or forbid us from doing something that God himself commands, then we must, not just optionally, but must disobey because our fealty is to Christ, the true king, and not to the imposter king, not to the imposter government.
So again, this is all uh, biblical Christianity 101, but it's gotten obfuscated in our own time and place, and I think largely obfuscated by a false understanding of the difference between church and state. Now, we won't launch off into that tangent, but I'll let you just chew around on that for a while. Okay, so it is an abomination to kings to do evil. That is the way it should be. For the throne is established by righteousness. That's to say the very throne is established by Christ. The office of kings or rulers are established by Christ and answerable to Christ. All right, continuing with our meditation on kingship... Christ, and by extension, especially the left-hand kingdom. Righteous lips are the delight of a king. Lips that speak the truth. Lips that speak justice. And he loves him who speaks what is right. So Christ, and of course by extension then, any true human king delights in righteous speech and in right speech. This is so very important, especially um, worthwhile is uh, Solzhenitsyn's um, insight that you know when you're talking about communism that took over and led to the persecution of uh, way, way, way more Christians than Jews died at the hands of the communists than Jews died at the hands of the Germans. But interesting how we never hear anything about that, isn't it? Uh, Way, way more Christians died. And um, Solzhenitsyn's point was, and of course it's been popularized in a title by Rod Dreher, Live Not By Lies. Live not by lies. That is really our task, is to not fall prey to the lies and not live by those lies, but to refuse to participate in the lies, no matter the cost. And I think that that foundational idea flows forth from this proverb. That righteous lips are, a deli- are the delight of a king. If Christ is our true king, then let us have righteous lips, not lying lips. And our true king, Christ, loves him who speaks what is right. So yes, we can speak winsomely, we can speak the truth in love, but we need to speak the truth. And we need not use love or winsomeness as an excuse to not speak the truth in ways that are direct and bold and right. So again, meditations on ways in which we as citizens of the one true king, Christ our Savior, crowned in thorns and crowned in glory for us, ways in which we can please him in the here and now, not living by lies, but speaking righteousness, speaking what is right. Okay, 14, a king's wrath is a messenger of death, And a wise man will appease it. 
So again, the assumption here is a good king. The great king is Christ. Remember from Psalm 2, um, he's speaking to the rulers of the earth. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So God sees the injustice of the world and he promises to punish it in his own due time. And so a king's wrath is a messenger of death. You, know, you can think of his wrath emanating out. And a wise man will appease that. So we can think of our king as, you know, this whole idea of like Jesus in, a bir- in like the Birkenstocks and the white robe with, you know, holding flowers and just kind of walking around the earth being like, peace, man, ah, government, I don't really care about that. My kingdom's not of this world. Is completely alien Jesus to the scriptures. 100% fabricated in the minds of hippies. So what we see instead is a Christ who is a king who is very attuned to what's going on in the world, who is holding the rulers accountable, and we can please him as his citizens, even though, yes, his kingdom isn't of the world in the sense that he's set up a, some sort of throne in Jerusalem and is sitting there, um, you know, gathering nukes around him. I mean, that's absurd. That's what he would do if he was a king of this world. But let's not mistake that just because his kingdom is not of this world, let's not mistake that he doesn't care about the kingdoms of this world. He absolutely does. And he will call the nations to judgment and to justice, temporally and, of course, finally at his return. Okay, 15, in the light of a king's face, there is life. Now, of course, that's Christ. But think of how this poetically contrasts so beautifully with the first part of 14. A king's wrath is a messenger of death. And then here, in the light of a king's face, there is life. And his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. So the light of the king's face, when his face lights up, shines upon you, you know, reminiscent of the benediction that we say in the divine service. And where the king is pleased with you, there is life. And in his favor, you have the clouds that bring the spring rain. Refreshing, food, healing, growth, all of the rest. So then... 16, and of course, I think this flows forth from this idea, uh, but also touches back on our previous meditation on wealth in verse 8. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. So again, wisdom and understanding versus gold and silver. Wouldn't it be nice to do both? Yeah, it just doesn't really work that way. Money brings foolishness with it. You can meditate on this too, because uh, just in a very basic way. One of the chief reasons we want money is so that we don't have to trust God. That's it. It's why we want our storehouses all filled up, why we want our 4Ks going to the brim, why we want to make sure we've got all our contingency plans and emergency funds in place and nothing can hurt or harm us and we're insured to the hilt just in case. Okay, now I don't need God. (laughs) 
So we have to understand how, again, our Lord Jesus here is the radical, not me. You cannot serve God and mammon. And you see that borne out that you're going to trust one or you're going to trust the other. Foolish to trust in gold or silver. Wise to trust in Christ. And thus you can see then that through trust in Christ, through fear of the Lord, then the gaining of wisdom and understanding are preferable to all the riches in the world. Plus, you know, you're born into this world with nothing, and when you die, you get to take nothing with you. Won't that be humorous? I mean, won't that just be purely enjoyable when the wealthy, arrogant of this life are face-to-face with Christ, and they're like, don't you know who I am? I'm a billionaire. <laughs> so great. So great. So your, our money is completely worthless. Completely worthless in God's eyes. Uh, but what you can take with you, I mean, I don't really like this. Like you came with nothing, you'll leave with nothing. That's not true. I mean, maybe it's true. It, it's kind of true like if you're an unbeliever, I guess. Even then you kind of got to wedge that fat foot into the shoe. It's more like... Um, you come into the world with nothing, but you retain everything that is yours in Christ, including wisdom and instruction. That carries on with you forever. Those things are the treasures in heaven that are laid up that nothing in this life and nothing there will ever take away. There's no rust or moth, and there's no thieves who can break in and steal that. And of course, a central element of that is the wisdom and instruction we receive in the Lord. Okay, please. Yeah. If you listen to George Gilder's latest economic theory, he's saying something like this. Wealth is really time exchange, and our greatest wealth is children. Hmm. Yeah, interesting thoughts. It'd be fun to just do a study on money, the concept of it. Get some of our brighter minds in the congregation to help out with that. All right, that's it. The Lord be with you.